From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. British Asian writer Sanjeev Sahota has been long listed for the booker for his new book China Room, a multi-generational love story that moves from a contemporary British Asian milieu to the 20th century rural Punjab. In this interview with my colleague Namita Devi Dayal, Sanjeev Sahota speaks about his own family's influence on his fiction, the role mathematics has played in his writing skills, and how his relationship with India has changed over the years. You have this extraordinarily unusual background where you had never read fiction until you were 18 years old, and then you picked up um, Rushdie's Midnight's Children and read it on a plane to India. Um, this is definitely an uncanny story for someone who has written three books, been named one of Ranta's list um, of best young writers, and been both shortlisted and longlisted for the Booker Prize at such a young age. What do you think was the turning point and how did you navigate this new love um, with your older self? I felt a strong emotional pull towards that art form, really. And I think it was this idea about watching people struggling through their lives in this hypothetical space, which we call a novel. And then somehow that was making me think much more harder about myself and my position and, and also about these the world of the novel and what it can do for, for the reader. So it was a very readerly response at that time. And then as the years went on and I read more and more, I think I just started asking quite a lot of lots of questions of the of the author beyond the page about why are you writing it that way? Why did you make that decision? Why not this other kind of way of telling a story? And I think once you start asking those, once you start trying to pick the book apart and trying to work out what's it made up of, what are the cogs and what are the and the elements that go into it, then it's not that big a leap to to want to have a go at writing it yourself, thinking I can actually put this thing together as two. So, so that was the kind of the the trajectory of my becoming a writer. And yeah, I guess the turning point was that that initial encounter with with the novel. And initially, it was just it's a pure love, a lot pure love of storytelling and and kind of the plottiness of it and. I'm very much, and then I should become a more experienced reader because I do think reading is hard. I do think reading is a muscle that you need to continually work at. Kind of your reading changes, and that changes you, and that changes you know what you want to write about. But initially, it was very much that that pure storytelling immersion that I responded to. And when you made the decision to start writing, considering that you come from a traditional Indian immigrant family, was there any resistance uh, from your parents and family? Um, well, I don't think I gave any opportunity for resistance because I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone I was writing. I wrote very much that first novel I wrote just in seclusion. Really, I was working full time. I'd come home. I was still living with my parents. I'd you know go upstairs to my room and kind of like just type away at weekends and holidays. I'd use that time as well. And I just don't think anyone. I certainly didn't put it out there that I'm. I want to be a writer. I'm. I want. I'm writing a novel. Just that just felt so hubristic to kind of make that kind of assertion. Um, I think that was partly just to protect myself because I didn't want to kind of raise the stakes in that way. I just wanted to just keep it something quite small and quite private and just something that was only only for me. But as the you know the years have gone on, they've been incredibly you know 
supportive. And actually, in hindsight, I can see that if I had been more open about it, I think the response would have been just quite sophisticated and quite open and said, that's fine. That's your thing. Carry makes you happy. Carry on doing it, which is kind of their, their response to this day. They don't, my fiction is not really read by my family or by, by my wife it is, but not by my wider family that much. I think they just accept that it's just something kind of that Sanjeev does, really. You read mathematics at Imperial College and then worked at an insurance company. Um, does that at all play into your writing? Um, I think there's perhaps a connection with just my sensibility. I think, I mean, I did maths at just at undergraduate level and I wasn't a talented mathematician. It just felt like the subject that I felt I ought to do. And the kind of mathematics I did do was very, it's called pure mathematics. So it's all about, you know, the elegance of the, the stuff you're putting out there and the precision with which you kind of do it. And I can see that in my writings well my writing is very much concerned with withholding and what is what you aren't saying and, and and concision seems quite important to me as well and spareness so i think that the idea of withholding and gaps and a kind of a terse lyricism i can see perhaps there's a parallel there but i think that's just a question of my sensibility and how my brain actually responds to what i consider beautiful and what my brain actually most quickly enjoys enjoys reading and enjoys working on um, <clears throat> Sanjeev, your first novel, um, Ours Are the Streets, was published in 2011. And the novel is against the entire radicalization of um, British Muslim youth and is a very interesting confessional story of a young Pakistani suicide bomber. Um, you were also very young at the time of writing it, uh, 30-ish. Can you talk about the psychology of that experience and of that time? Yeah, well, I was in my mid-twenties when I started writing that novel. And I think, I mean, you know, who knows where, where ideas or kind of novels come from. But I was living and working in Leeds in the north of England, which was and just living about a mile away from when the the July the seventh London bombers were, or the ringleader were were from and when that bombing in london happened i was living about a mile away from the place where those boys were from one of the one of the boys were from i do remember just being a really questioning time people wondering about why is this happening in our community or what's happened you know what's how could this have come on and i think it just felt like quite to me just quite a meaty story for me to actually get my teeth into it's quite a kind of a big psychology for me to try to understand and i think one of the things the novel does is understanding psychology and patterning and how history lands in in the present. But I was a bit like those young men. Now, I was a child of immigrants. I was brought up in the north of England. I wasn't a particularly, just like them, I wasn't a particularly overly religious household. It was quite a reasonably sort of like a household that was kind of semi-religious in, in its way. So I just made me think, like, why would I go down? Why would those boys go down a path that was totally alien to what I could ever do. I just felt like a really interesting path to walk down. And I felt question, I think there were parallels and questions of exclusion, questions of feeling that your that your life is just quite fragmentary, that you live a different life behind your front door at home than you do, than you're allowed to live outside your front door. And that kind of schism and that tension that creates in in a person, I think was was worth exploring. And I think you know, inevitably first novels are in some sense autobiographical. And I think for me, 
that first novel, the emotional posture of that novel was very, I think, autobiographical. The kind of that schism, that tension that you feel by living in this kind of duality was played out in, the, in that book. And that was me drawing, I think, drawing on my own feelings as well. How do you feel um, as far as identity is concerned, especially when you return to India? Does the connection in any way get deeper or do you feel more alien or does it even matter? Do you, you know, relate to your family there? Is it a part of who you are? I mean, it clearly uh, was a big part of the narrative of China at home, which we talk about. I think my relationship in terms of belonging to India has loosened, actually. It's don't, I don't think it has deepened. I remember in my, when I was younger, I felt an immediate sense of belonging and being welcomed and feeling as if India was just as much a home, or particularly Punjab in that northwest corner of India where my family's from, particularly just rural Punjab where my family still lives, was very much as much a home as, as, any, as any place in, in England. Um, which I think was a response to my vexed relationship with, with England and my adolescence and growing up here. But I think as the years have gone on, I think I've just started to question what was the basis for that sense of belonging I found in, I found in India. And actually, is it just because in India, I have a certain amount of privilege. People see me as English, you know, as, as, a, you know, as a foreigner, as someone with a great deal of cultural and social capital in the world. And so is that sense of belonging built on those privileges, you know, how proud, I wonder, I sometimes wonder how, how, how much of a sense of belonging to India do um, people from the lower castes feel? How, how much are they allowed to belong to India? So I'm increasingly feeling that belonging is people that are allowed to belong to any place in the world are usually the people that have a certain degree of privilege and are allowed to walk through the world feeling as if they do have a sense of entitlement to that particular place. But I do think that belonging is I do think it's important. I've changed. I used to just hanker for that sense of belonging when I was younger. When, when you're an adolescent, all you want to do is fit in. You want to just like be a part of the place that, you're, that you live in just as much as anyone else. And then as I was in my 20s, I started to think actually for a writer, it's probably quite good to have that outsider perspective when you don't belong and you can look in quite in an objective, detached way. But I think now I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm going back to thinking, Actually, that sense of connection to a place is really grounding and centering. And partly perhaps it's because of watching my children and how they actually have a much more positive relationship with England than, than I did when I was growing up. And I think that's because they're living in a place which is much more, living in an area which is quite comfortable with itself. It's not, I, you know, I grew up in quite a working class area. They grew up in a very different area. So they're not, that sense of connection, I think it comes to them much more easily. Or they're not feeling excluded in the way that I think I was when I was growing up. So it's interesting that my kids' relationship with England is affecting how I think about England as well and my ideas of belonging are changing as well. But I do you know, I think actually it's really, I think it's so important to have a sense of a home. And that home can be, it can be a land. It might, for me, it must, oftentimes it's just, it's just my desk where I'm writing. That's when I feel most at home or it's among my family. I think if you can find that sense of belonging in an actual physical area, then that's really, that's really powerful, I think, for, for someone to have. It's quite grounding, I'd imagine. There's the quiet politics in your writing, even um, the, um, the Year of the Runaways, which focuses on the experiences of migrant workers in Britain. Um, can you talk about that? And how did you do your research? I've been going to India and to Punjab since I was very young, so I was six or seven years old, and I'd go, I used to go like, you know, almost annually. And 
both been meeting men and women, but mostly men, kind of talking about wanting to get to the West and, you know, because life on the farms was hard. It was hard to make money. They had families to support. And it was kind of an open conversation in the markets and the bazaars about various schemes or various agents that might help them and routes other people are taken to get to England or to America or to, you know, Germany, wherever Europe. Um, so I never felt that it was something I had to go and dig about and find out what the secrets were. It's just a conversation. I was always in people's houses. It was always a topic of the day. How can my son get to get to the West? So that was any research was kind of had already been happening all, all throughout those years. And immigration's played such a big part in my family history, um, not just the immigration from India to the UK in the 60s, but before that, you know, um, my family during partition had to flee what became Pakistan and to India. So there was kind of like that double migration took place and almost in that second migration to the UK almost had to happen to make sense of that first difficult, you know, violent migration that we were forced to go on. So given that migration has played such a, a part in my family history, it felt quite natural that I didn't, it felt inevitable that I would also write about it too. And, and of course, you know, I don't see it as, a, as being a particularly topical or timely story. I think people have been, or if it is topical, it's been topical for 2000 years. People have been migrating and trying to make a better life for themselves, you know, for eons. So do you speak or understand Punjabi? Um, and, and how do you feel about the, the sort of politics of translation, uh, given that your books have been set in a very Punjabi environment? Yeah, I, I do speak Punjabi fluently, um, and my reading and writing is less fluent, but I can, I can speak it quite idiomatically as well, which I really love, actually. It's quite nice. Um, even though when I'm in Punjab, people can always immediately spot that I'm not actually born and brought up in Punjab. But when I get to Delhi, people think I am from Punjab, but when I get to Punjab, they know that I'm not from Punjab. <laughs> um, it's quite funny. And there's a lots of Punjabi, I had lots of... Um, untranslated or as I say transliterated Punjabi in the year of the runaways there'll be blocks of Punjabi written in English but which wasn't really made clear to a, a non-Punjabi reader what it meant to what it might mean in context and that was quite important for me that I didn't make things easy for the non-Punjabi reader in that way because I thought these boys these young men these migrants in the book that they're struggling to understand the signs and symbols of the world that they're suddenly in. And I wanted that to be reflected somehow in the reading experience. And the way I did that was to make the reader also a bit discombobulated and a bit unsure about what these words and what these signs mean. And also it's a novel very much about the, the insiderness of this, of this group of young men. In the novel, they're always speaking to each other in Punjabi. Though we hear it in English, they are speaking to, to each other in Punjabi. And I wanted that to be reflected by this kind of this, by having lots of Punjabi terms and phrases in the book, which the reader would have to deal with, really, just in the way that these boys are dealing with with their own sort of um, displacement. In China Room, it's different. In China Room, there's very little, actually, Punjabi. There's hardly any. And if there is, I think there's one sentence of Punjabi, but even that makes perfect sense in, in context. And that's because that book is being narrated by an English narrator, by a British-English narrator from 2019. So it felt necessary just for the art of the book for that to be reflected in in the prose and in the language so for example in the year in the year of runaways the word manja is used to mean that's and that string bed which is a punjabi word all the time but in china room the word jarboy is used which is a very anglicized version of the word again reflecting the different 
places that the book is being narrated from. So my, my decisions about things like what how much job you have in the books is, is, is partly a political decision, but it's, it's mostly a decision based on the art of the book. What is the, what is the most necessary and most artful way in which this book needs to be told and how is the language going to reflect that? That's usually my, my starting point. And the book's not available in Punjabi. It's not available. It's not been translated into Punjabi yet or Hindi, actually, for that matter. Um, but I hope one day it is. It'd be, it'd be wonderful for me to have that, to have that happen. China Room, I, I couldn't put it down. It's, it was just so riveting and suspenseful. And um, I am really fascinated by how you intertwined these two completely disparate and yet not so disparate stories about a great-grandmother set against partition and then this young man from England who comes back to the same claustrophobic space. How did you even think about this story and how much of it is based on family folklore and how much of it would be imagination? Because you really recreated a world that is so riveting. Thank you. Um... I start off with this image of these women in this room being sequestered from the men, um, not knowing who they were married to. And that came from this old sort of family legend. And how much of this is true, no one knows. But the, the idea that there was this great-grandmother who was one of four women, actually, not three, four women married to four brothers in a single ceremony. And none of them knew who their husband was until a year later when they saw who was holding which baby. How that story has kind of been embellished and exaggerated as the decades have gone on, as stories tend to be by families, um, I don't know. But that initial image of these women sequestered in a room felt quite potent and quite mythic in a way, actually. And then there was a second element, which was that room still exists. It's still on that farm in India, which is the the farm that my family owns, the farm that I've been to many times. And that room with the bars is still there, though it's now used as a grain store. And the third bit of um, the third kind of seed of the novel was this quite sketchy detail about a scandal around the Indian independence movement involving another ancestor of mine from around that time. So I had these three things: I had this like this legend, I had this room, and I had this sketchy scandal. And I just wanted to sort of wrap a fiction around them. So those were the three things that I started with. And that story about those four women was always a story spoken about with a great deal of sort of levity and humour in my family about those innocent ancestors. They didn't even know who they were married to, how funny that is. But it always just felt like quite a dark and quite a painful story to me. Um, That was the initial starting point, this kind of mythic image of these women in the room, sequestered from the men, veiled. But then as I was writing it, it just felt that the writing wasn't coming. It felt quite off. It didn't feel... So now that story lost its urgency, it lost its potency and vitality. And I think it's because I just didn't feel like it was necessary for me to tell this big historical story set against the independence movement of this time. That historical narrative felt, it was potent, but it also just felt not quite necessary for me to tell it. I thought what it doesn't felt quite, didn't feel fresh. It didn't feel what I need to tell the story about the Indian, Indian independence movement. So I set it aside thinking that story was done and I wasn't going to go back to it. And I started writing this this other story about a young man and his travails. But then as I was writing that story, that story too wasn't quite coming into focus. It felt quite, it just felt a bit dull, actually. Um, But then in the spring of 2019, I went back to my parents' home where I grew up because my father had some knee surgery and he did just some help. 
and this is in the book, of course, and that, and sitting down back in my kind of family home, where I'd not been for like many years, um, there was a, a few pictures on the wall, and one of the pictures was of my great-grandmother holding me, and that photo is replicated at the back of the yeah. book. And I found that whole process just quite of being back home, of thinking again about sort of um, the past and all sorts of pasts, and suddenly kind of I started realising that that old narrative that I put aside about these three women in, in this room and this more recent narrative about this young man were connected, that like they were actually talking to each other. They were almost shaking hands across time. And that's when I started seeing that actually they're both about the same thing. They're both about liberation. They're both about a, a need for freedom. And, and they're both about seeking connection. So not only are the, the two narratives connected, they're also about seeking connection. And once I got that clear in my head, then I'd be able to like see that how these stories could almost spiral around each other. And that's really how it came about. Thank you so much, Sanji. That was really lovely. Pleasure. Thanks, Namita. Really enjoyed that. All the best. Here, Sauta gives you a glimpse of the immersive world he has created in China Room. Meher is not so obedient a 15-year-old that she won't try to uncover which of the three brothers is her husband. Already, the morning after the wedding, and despite nervous, trembling hands, she combines varying amounts of lemon, garlic and spice in their side plates of sliced onions then attempts to detect the particular odour on the man who visits later that same night, invisible to her in the dark. It proves inconclusive, the strongest smell by far her fear. So she tries again after overhearing one of the trio complaining about the calluses on his hands. The concentration is fierce when her husband's palm next strokes her naked arm. But then too, she isn't certain. Maybe all male hands feel so rough, so clumsily eager and dry. It is 1929. Summer is erupting and the brothers do not address her in one another's presence. Indeed, they barely speak to her at all. And she, it goes without saying, is expected to remain dutiful, veiled and silent like the other new brides. Spying from her window, she sees only the brothers' likeness. Close in age, they share the same narrow build with unconvincing shoulders and grave eyes. Serious faces that carry no slack features that follow the same rules. The three are evenly bearded, their hair trimmed short and tight, and all day they wear loose turbans cut from the same saffron wrap. Most hours the brothers will be out working the fields, playing, drinking, while she weaves and cooks and shovels and milks, until those evenings when Mai, their mother, says to her, raising a tea glass to grim lips, not to the china room tonight. Today's episode was produced by Joshua Thomas and Jairad Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.